He rocks in the treetops all day long, hopping and a bopping and a singing his song. All the little birds on Jaybird Street look to hear the robin go tweet, 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 rockin' robin. All right, welcome back to Dialogue De Novo, a Loyola University Chicago School of Law student-initiated podcast of in-depth professional, political, and personal conversations by, of, and for the Loyola University Chicago School of Law community and whoever else would like to hear us out. Please like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at Dialogue De Novo, and add us to your library of podcasts available in the Apple Store, Stitcher, and on SoundCloud. Due to scheduling conflicts, I was unable to participate in this episode's discussion, so Jake went at it alone with Professor Juan Perea. Professor Perea is the Kurt and Linda Roden Professor of Law and Social Justice and Associate Dean for Research and Faculty at Loyola University Chicago's School of Law. His specialty areas include constitutional law, professional responsibility, employment law, and race relations. Professor Perea joined Loyola Chicago's full-time faculty in 2011. Prior to coming to Loyola, he was the Cohn, Wagner, Nugent, Johnson, Hazuri, and Roth Professor of Law at the University of Florida Levine College of Law. He has also served as a visiting professor at Harvard Law School, Boston College Law School, and the University of Colorado School of Law. During the 2012-2013 academic year, he was the lead distinguished chair in constitutional law at John Marshall Law School. In 2011, he was the Reichland Distinguished Visiting Professor at Villanova Law School. Professor Perea has written extensively on racial relations and racial inequality, the legal history of race relations in the United States, and the civil rights of Latinos. His articles have been published in Harvard Law Review, California Law Review, New York University Law Review, Michigan Law Review, UCLA Law Review, Minnesota Law Review, and William and Mary Law Review, among others. After graduating magna cum laude from Boston College Law School, he clerked for the Honorable Bruce Celia of the United States Court of Appeals for the First Circuit. After, he spent years at the Boston firm Ropes and Gray, where he specialized in labor and employment law. On top of his experience in private practice and legal education, he spent a year as an attorney for the National Labor Relations Board. He has also testified as an expert before the United States Senate, the United States Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, and the United States Commission on Civil Rights. Currently, he teaches constitutional law, professional responsibility, critical theory seminar, employment law, and race relations at Loyola Chicago School of Law. On this episode, Jake and Professor Perea discuss the federal government's historically discriminatory policies against black and brown Americans, and how that impacts wealth and education today. They also speak about implicit bias and the limits of the implicit bias test, how language is central to identity, and how we can better tolerate diversity in today's society. Without further ado, here is Professor Perea and Jake's conversation, unedited and in full. Welcome to Dialogue De Novo. I'm Jake Rome. Richard is off for this inaugural episode, but I am not feeling lonely because I'm here with Juan Perea. 
Professor Perea is a professor of constitutional law at Loyola University Chicago. He is a distinguished writer and thinker. Uh, you can find his work between the covers of such prestigious publications as the Harvard Law Journal. And I think he's a pretty nice guy. Professor Perea, thanks for coming on the show. Uh, you're welcome. It's nice to be with you. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so there's a lot of reasons that uh, we wanted to have you on the podcast. But I think I'd like to start with just asking you a little bit about yourself, um, your biography, <clears throat> and basically how you ended up talking to me today, which I know you're going to regard as the zenith of your career. Um, so go ahead. <laughs> Without a doubt. Um, by the way, am I speaking loudly enough yeah, for our yeah. purposes? Yes, okay. sir. Okay, good. So about me, um, I was born in Washington, D.C., both of my parents are immigrants from Central and South America. Uh, Spanish was my first language, and I didn't learn English, I think, until I began, uh, I entered public school not knowing any English, so that was, that was rough going. Um, I identify strongly as Latino, I'm, I'm fair-skinned Latino. And the reason I identify as Latino is because I am. Both of my parents are from Central and South America, but also because I've never really been treated as though I was white. And one of the reasons I've written as I have is because there's a whole realm of discrimination in the world that uh, doesn't get recognized and is actually assumed not to exist, um, which affects Latinos and, and other, other minority group members. So my lived experiences inform my scholarship a lot, and that's, about that's, that's, <clears throat> a, that's just uh, as it is. <laughs> so uh, you were born in D.C. Yeah. Uh, you lived in D.C. throughout your whole childhood, your adolescence, or where did you go to schooling, and when did you finally branch out from the nest, so to speak? Um, well, I, I, uh, I went to college at University of Maryland, so I was in the D.C. area hmm. for the uh, <clears throat> first 20-some years of my life. Then I moved to Boston, actually to go to graduate school in social work, and... Then I lived in Boston for about 10 years. I went to law school at Boston College. And I didn't know that I wanted to be a professor until I was in law school. And I actually had one wonderful professor. His name is Mark Broden. I'm still friends with him. He, he, he seemed very cool to me because he was a civil rights lawyer who, who wrote about improving civil rights for people and he was a wonderful teacher and is actually I'm sure he's still a wonderful teacher and he was then so he, he really inspired me so much uh, to want to be a teacher so then I started making career decisions to try and um, get the kind of credentials I would need to become a teacher and I was fortunate you know everything worked out uh, so I was I started teaching in 1990 at the University of Florida, and then I moved here in 2011. And I'm very glad to be here at Loyola. 
Absolutely. Boston College, that's a Newton Mass, right? Yes. Yeah, I went to UNH. I'm a New Englander, so mm. we have that in common. Uh, what do you think of Boston? How... I like Boston, although <clears throat> it's a difficult place in a lot of ways. I, I like Boston a lot. I still do. Well, I can speak firsthand that you're probably one of like a handful Latinos that live in Boston. I mean, there's not many, huh? Uh, no, the, the, perhaps Chicago and, uh, and Boston are in a running gun, gun battle for like whitest cities, you know? Hmm. Well, I mean, sans the south side. Um, you know, it's interesting. Boston for me actually was the place where I was uh, treated the, m the most negatively as a Latino. Mm -hmm. And that, was, that had a lot to do with why I went to law school, because I was treated quite unfairly in, in, in one of my employments before law school. And there was no response to it. It was just utterly unfair. And, and I, I knew there had to be some better way some way of getting some sort of a remedy, or at least I wish there was, and I thought law school would be a place to learn about that. And, and it was. That was a good call. <laughs> so you started your teaching career down in Florida. Yeah. And did right out of the gate, were you always teaching con law, or was that something that you yes. wanted to aspire to? Yeah. Yes, actually. I was very fortunate. It's, it's actually pretty hard to get to teach con law in well, law it's schools. Well, like such an attractive topic. I mean, it really is. big purple prose, you know, all sweeping ideas that that really strike at the heart of a lot of values, you know, so I can, I can imagine. It's a fascinating subject, and I mean, the way I got into it, I got a call from uh, the associate dean the summer before I started, and he just asked me, would I like to teach con law? And I said, sure, you know, because it's, so, it's such an unusual opportunity. You didn't have to parlay your way into that at all. <laughs> no, so I've been teaching it ever since. And uh, it's a big subject. It, and, and I find it you know, continually interesting. I, I learn more about it literally, almost literally every day. But certainly every year I learn a lot. And, uh, and there's so much more to learn about it as well. So it's a very rich field. Well, nobody ever asked me this question, but if somebody did ask me this question, like, which subject do you wish you could go back in time and retake, it, I would definitely answer con law. Because, uh, I mean, knowing just how to think uh, about the law, that really comes in at your second and third year of law school. I mean, you're just figuring out how to read cases your first year, the entire time, basically. And uh, I actually took jurisprudence uh, my second semester of second year. And that class really made law school click for me, and I never thought that was going to be the case. Hmm. Like, I'm always, I'm a very literal thinker, um, and it took such a long time to think about things in, like, this sort of broad, narrative way that con law really lends itself to. Hmm. And uh, I wish I could go back knowing what I know now and retake con law. And also, I had Barry Sullivan, who's an amazing teacher. Hmm. Um, Maybe you can in some way. Maybe you're <clears throat> an independent study or something. Another one? I mean, well, you got this going on. Ah, right now, okay. So. Well, next semester. Maybe. Yeah, right. Um, so, I guess, let's dive into some of the reason that Richard and I wanted to have you on, which is you write a lot about identity and race and uh, how those interact, and uh, your writing definitely 
is very, a lot of it's from, you know, years ago, but it's very prescient. Um, the national debate that we are having right now and this sort of divide between the left and the right, it, I, I think a lot of it can be chalked up to these identity issues. Um, identity politics uh, is a big thing right now. Um, so I guess I know that you have some more recent writings that we should touch on later, but I'll, I want to start with the black-white paradigm. Okay. Um, you start the article with talking about how paradigm how bar- paradigms are useful, right? Uh, like they have a place, I guess, uh, in discerning relevance, right? Um, and that, of course, is true. Like we we categorize things as humans and. We, that's the best way that we have to process information. Like, if it's not this, then it's that. Um, but the binary is where I kind of get held up with that idea, the black-white binary. Mm-hmm. So I guess what is, what's the evidence to you that it is a black-white binary and not more of like a dichotomous key where it's further represented? Because you do kind of see this black part of the paradigm as this monolith that kind of encompasses all people that aren't white. And I guess, why is it that you view it that way and not some other way where there are more branches underneath, you know, perhaps it could be characterized as white and not white. I, I mean, even that has some, some implications, but I guess, uh, where does this come from? Well, so I would agree with you, actually, that it's, it's probably more constructive to think of it as a white and non-white division society-wide. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that's that's more descriptive of reality in ways. But, but if you ask me where does black-white paradigm come from, Well, I, the most important reason, and it's it's a it's quite a central reason, is that so much of the legal history of American culture and United States culture has been articulated through through law that has defined the relative places of white people and black people. And the Constitution does this, and before the Constitution, throughout the colonies, colonial slave codes did this. So it's... Race, as we understand it, has been a fundamental building block of the society as it still exists. And that's not recognized very often. Uh, It should be. Its ramifications should be studied and well understood because that basic ordering of society with whites dominant and blacks subordinated and other non-whites subordinated remains the basic structure of society exactly as it was produced in the colonial era. The, The forms differ somewhat. In other words, the, the, um, 
the statutory language is different today than it was certainly in the colonial era and, and early U.S. history. But the basic structure and, and the basic societal commitment to the structure, I think, remains largely the same. So, <clears throat> I mean, uh, in terms of laws, I mean, we've, we've eradicated a lot of the laws that uh, were discriminatory, right? I mean, the, the, the attack line to what you just said would be that uh, minorities and, and white people are treated the same under the law, right? So, I mean, there is no there is no law today that applies to white people or grants them right that does not also do so to uh, to minorities. So, what would be the evidence that you would point to that would uh, indicate that this historical injustice continues today? Well, there's a lot. Um, I guess first I would say that. For most of the Supreme Court's history, so the Supreme Court is created in the Constitution, mm -hmm. right, 1787. So for about 240 years, really until the 19, let's say Brown versus Board of Education, maybe you could go a little bit earlier. But so for the first 100 and 70 or so years of the Supreme Court's history, but add to this another 170 years of colonial history, which overtly, overtly protected white supremacy. You have the huge majority of the Supreme Court's history enforcing white supremacy. And when I say white supremacy, I mean protection of the ability of, of whites to accumulate disproportionate wealth, opportunities, prestige, education. <clears throat> and all of this was done with, with impunity and, and really without any regard for equality until basically the 19... 50s, let's say Brown versus Board. And, and so what you see with the Warren Court is, is really the only period in American history in which the Supreme Court has actually made decisions that were of benefit to persons of color, that actually improved things, or at least attempted to improve things. And what we see since the beginning of the 1970s is basically a retreat from from Brown and from the, the progressive possibilities of those Warren Court decisions. And it's almost a wholesale retreat. So, you know, at this point now, we have a Supreme Court that's been around, say, 240 years. And, but for that 20-year period, um, you know, 1954, say, to the mid-70s, basically the court has been deciding uniformly in favor of basically protecting the status quo that favors whites. So the fact that, you know, that laws can't be worded to discriminate on the basis of race on their face is very minor compared to the fact that 
discriminatory laws that preserve a racist status quo, they don't have to refer to race to accomplish discrimination. This is this so is like a disparate impact type of thing. Sure. I mean, um, so I mean, not, not only that, but yeah. So I'm just going to like zero in on this. Like <clears throat> you said, a wholesale retreat from Brown, but obviously we haven't de desegregated schools, right? So I mean, that's what actually it, not accurate. It isn't. We're we're just as segregated now, pretty much as we were during the time of Brown versus Board. It's it's stunning. I mean, this is a highly segregated society. In the end, Brown has not made much difference it, it, on the ground. Um, that's a fair argument. Uh, so, well, certainly in Chicago. I mean, Chicago is a not just Chicago, thing. whole country, <clears throat> the whole country. So, I mean, I guess it sounds like that you were. Um, you're obviously disappointed with the way the Supreme Court has ruled since the war in court. I mean, uh, what, are the, what are the concrete issues for you that you think are so salient today that are demonstrative of this white-centric uh, society? I mean, uh, we talked about schools. I, I mean, uh, obviously there's uh, a lot of wealth inequality, right? I mean, I don't know offhand whether we can fully attribute that to policy and laws um there's probably a, a multivariate analysis for that but um what else strikes you i mean well, let me let me respond to that because okay, go ahead. i don't know if if you read the uh, the book that that was assigned to the first year is the color of law it's a it's a fine book by richard rothstein mm -hmm. and in the book he tells the story of how the federal government encouraged and subsidized segregated cities right in addition to that I've done my own research on the GI Bill and on much of the history that Rothstein covers and it turns out to be the case that the federal government actually produced segregation not just encouraged but subsidized financed required segregation actually and and actually created much of the wealth disparity that exists between whites and blacks. And let me just describe for you in two, two contexts exactly how that happened. Yeah, because okay. I haven't read the book. Um, this isn't in the book, but it's oh. in an, another article that I wrote called Doctrines of Delusion. Mm -hmm. So I'll just describe the GI Bill. Uh, so during World War II, there were about 17 million, 16 or 17 million mostly men, huge majority men, sent abroad to fight and recruited to fight. And in order to accommodate them and create opportunities for them, the Congress passes the GI Bill, two major benefits of which were an education benefit and a housing benefit. With respect to, excuse me, to the education benefit, basically the bill provided tuition assistance, tuition plus a stipend, in order to cover you know, expenses at any university that one could get admitted to, okay? Now, as that turned out, whites got the, the huge majority of the benefits from that legislation because almost all universities in the country were white-centric and segregated. 
almost all of them, including in the north. You know, University of Pennsylvania had a tiny, tiny handful of black students in the 1940s. Princeton didn't even begin to desegregate until 1954, I think. So this was outright racial segregation and denial of opportunities to black students. So no matter how worthy and deserving a black serviceman was, would never get admitted into Harvard or Yale or any of the elite schools or any of the less elite schools, and certainly not in any of the explicitly segregated universities in the South. The whole country was basically closed down to African-American students. The only options that, that African-American veterans who wanted to go to college had, the only realistic option was to go to historically black colleges and universities. Mm -hmm most of which are in the South, most of which were severely underfunded, and most of which basically couldn't accommodate the demand for education. So a lot of, the majority, I think, of African-American servicemen who wanted a college education could only get it at historically black colleges and universities, and many of them couldn't go even there because there weren't enough slots. So the GI Bill actually financed more educational privilege, which translates into occupational privilege, salary privilege, etc., actually exacerbated the educational gap between blacks and whites. Now, on its face, the legislation says it's available to everybody, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. except the, the amount of discrimination by the universities throughout the country meant that the outcomes were entirely disparate. And the same thing happened with the housing benefit, mm. which in effect was of no use to blacks. None because at all. Because of redlining and, and all Because of, of redlining, because the federal government promoted segregated neighborhoods, promoted all white neighborhoods, and would basically only grant mortgages to all white neighborhoods. So bankers would only subsidize mortgages that were located in all white neighborhoods according to the FHA's guidelines. So the federal government is promoting segregated all-white housing in the suburbs and financing that and denying financing to areas that were integrated. So the federal government explicitly required segregation. This is why we have white suburbs surrounding mostly African-American and now Latino inner cities. It's because the federal government created it. And let me just finish, because this is remarkably no, important. Yeah, yeah, of course. This, this is what happens during the 50s, that you have basically the financing of housing for whites in attractive suburbs and the, the denial of financing for African Americans. Over time, those white suburbs and white housing goes way up in value. Mm -hmm creates very wealthy white enclaves, which exist in almost every city. Those wealthy enclaves basically don't allow in many African Americans at all. They remain predominantly white. Mm -hmm. Well, it's in those places that have the good schools. It's those places that have the wealth. When you have a, an educational system that's financed through property taxes, this guarantees that rich white school districts will always have the best schools. And impoverished inner city districts, mostly black, mostly Latino, will never be able to have schools of the same quality.
so the outcomes of the federal government's racist housing policies ends up being this huge wealth disparity that still exists, still causes undereducation for persons of color, overeducation for whites, or much more privileged education for whites, and then all of that gets exacerbated throughout university level and employment because qualification standards for universities are based on the achievements of white students from privileged neighborhoods. So all of it goes back to the federal government subsidizing in an overtly racist way the creation of segregated cities. And the current impacts of it are, are devastating and remain so. And most, most whites have no idea that basically they've benefited from a huge <clears throat> system of unjust enrichment that has nothing to do with merit, has everything to do with being white. It's outrageous. And it gives the lie to a lot of myths about merit and about what our society is really like. This is a remarkably racist society, remarkably inegalitarian, and committed to those things. So, uh, obviously all that's very powerful evidence. I, I just want to go back and just clear, I, I'm, <clears throat> I know and I trust that uh, the FHA did promulgate these rules, but it was as explicit as you state them. Like yes. it, it, in the regulations, it said whites, or did it use some kind of euphemism or coded language, or, or it's. So here's the evidence. Okay. Um, there's there's a lot of it. One of the clearest examples is in in the FHA's underwriting manual. They actually gave an example of a restrictive racial covenant mm. for use in producing, uh, you know, producing subsidized housing. Mm -hmm. This after Shelley v. Kramer. So you have the Supreme Court saying it won't enforce racist racial covenants. Mm -hmm. The Supreme Court is recommending them and giving, rather, the, the federal government, the FHA, is recommending them and giving a model model racist restrictive covenant language mm -hmm. right in its own handbook. Mm. Like the platonic idea of a racist statement, you know? It's just like as clear as can be, right? I wouldn't call it platonic, but right. I, I would say very clear. Right. And then right. and then in the in the administration of the grades for different kinds of of uh, housing areas, A grades were only given to uh, areas that were described as homogeneous homogeneous, growing, prosperous, etc., which was mm. the homogeneous and not including undesirable peoples. Okay, so very coded but very obvious not, language. Not so coded. Well, not so coded at all. If you could, look yeah. if you look then at what FHA appraisers did with that, mm -hmm. A grades only went to all white areas. Mm -hmm. Period. Okay. If areas had any African Americans in them, they were graded D, mm. low grades which no banker in his right mind would, would lend sure, to. Sure. And that's exactly how it played out. This makes me think of a, a story that 
Cory Booker, the senator from New Jersey, tells about how his parents were uh, the first to get a home in an all-white neighborhood. But the, the realtor, who was in cahoots with his parents, had to pretend that they were white in order for the guy to san- like sign over the, the title to his parents. And then, lo and behold, the black family shows up and... Uh, I think the seller actually sicks his dog on his parents or something. Like it's it's a crazy story. He tells it better than I do, but um it's not crazy, it's typical. Mm. It's typical. This is this is where you really need to study history to understand. See, there's nothing there's nothing crazy about it. that's the way it worked. I'll give you one other example that's very sure. telling. Yeah. In the code of ethics of the I forget the name of the organization. It was the American Realtors Association. Mm-hmm. These are the folks that show people around and guide them to mm-hmm. different kinds of homes. Mm-hmm. Well, as a matter of the code of ethics, it said you're, you're not to you're not to sell property to anybody who would bring down the value of land, such as a mob boss, uh, oh, some sort of a striptease place, and mm-hmm. then the, the last in the list was a colored man of means who wants to give his children a college education and who thinks he should be able to live in a white area. So basically, black buyers who were just as qualified, if not more, than white buyers, it would have violated the code of ethics of the realtors group to show a black buyer a property in a white neighborhood. What time frame is this? Just this is right around the same time. Uh, so 40s, 40s, 50s. 40s, 50s. In the code of ethics of mm-hmm. the realtors. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, so uh, I asked for evidence. That there, there's some evidence. There's plenty. Take a look <clears throat> at my Doctrines of Delusions piece. It's yeah, all yeah, right yeah. there. I, um, so, so a lot of the inequalities um, and discrimination that you see today, would you consider that to be a lot of, obviously a lot of its legacy from what you were just describing? Um, so I guess what would be the prescription? Um, what, what do you propose? Uh, what do you think are some good policy ideas? And uh, I think that this is sort of uh, one of those moments or one of those crossroads where the right and the left tend to lose each other. Because I think that uh, the right and the left identify the same common ailments, right? Crime, poverty, single motherhood in black and uh, Latino communities. and um, But they differ on what prescriptions would write. So I guess uh, in, in your mind's eye, what, uh, what, what do you think we need to do to course correct and um, start fixing this? And maybe this will lead into your affirmative action piece that you wrote mm. well if you look at the harms produced by the federal government and, and I guess it's important to understand too that it, at this time at the time of the enactment of the GI Bill and, and after the federal government itself was entirely segregated by law it was only Truman in 1948 who began to desegregate the military. The military was segregated. Separate blood banks, separate hospitals, separate everything. The whole structure was segregated. So right. any any form of equality would have been highly anomalous. Mm-hmm. So 
So let me just say that. And also, sure. when we talk about the federal government, it's not an abstraction. It's the representative body of the power of the people. So the federal government is enacting the wishes of the American public. And until the 1960s, that was a very pronounced wish for white supremacy, pure and simple. And, and that's exactly what we got. So the harms that I identified before mm -hmm. were basically, you know, purposeful, intentional denial of educational opportunities to African-American students, purposeful, intentional denial of housing opportunities, which leads to unequal wealth, unequal schooling, unequal opportunity across the board. Mm -hmm. The correctives are to do the opposite, to guarantee plentiful opportunities for high-quality education to every person, and particularly to those people who have been most harmed by a government intent on promoting the wealth and opportunity of whites. So you provide educational opportunity to persons of color who have been harmed. And then to remedy the, the really the transfer of wealth from, from urban centers to white suburbs and, and the continuing um, hoarding of opportunities that whites do, you invest. You invest in cities. You invest in opportunities. You invest in businesses. You create wealth. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> you create wealth and you, you actually, in a real way, enable black and Latino people to create wealth for, the, for themselves. Because absent discrimination, they're just as good at it as anybody. Um, well, I think that this is definitely an area where, because uh, I'm, like I, like I said to you earlier, uh, staunchly libertarian. I think that the federal government, whatever it does, it usually screws it up. Um, and I generally apply that principle to uh, local governments as well. And I think that Chicago is such a good example of it because I don't know if you're familiar with the TIF program in Chicago, the tax increment financing, where mm. they basically set property tax, and this is for the benefit of the listeners, uh, they set property taxes to a baseline, and then any increase in that over time uh, gets put into a basically a fund that's supposed to go back into low-income communities to build businesses, uh, to build community centers, to basically help them have a little bit of economic activity so at the end of the TIF period, there's new businesses there, they're going to spring up property taxes, and then boom, we've fix the neighborhood, and I'm putting scare quotes around that. Um, but the way they've been used is uh, they basically go into a slush fund and then they're funneled up to the loop, they're funneled up to Michigan Avenue, uh, they build shiny new buildings. Um, and I think there, there's only a couple examples of these funds actually be, being used responsibly. Uh, they're trying to extend the red line down further south so that people who live in the south side can go up to the north side for jobs. And then they put a Whole Foods in Englewood. 
Um, and granted, that area used to be a food desert, but I mean, what did it create? Like 50 jobs. And uh, I don't know that they're, I think they got a tax abatement from the city as well. So, I mean, government just continually ignores the problems that it has. And, and this is what I find so interesting, is that if you look at every major city in the United States, they're run by super democratic governments, I mean, Los Angeles, New York, Chicago, and they claim that they're helping and they're for like the minorities and that they care about minorities, but then they enact these policies that just continually throw you know, daggers at these communities. And they even like enact policies like the TIF program where you know, their mission statement is to help rebuild dilapidated areas and they end up giving it to a business that would have opened its storefront on Michigan Avenue anyway, mm. you know, and uh, these, these giant, you know, basically taxpayer uh, abatements to these giant businesses. And, and the most criminal part of it is that like 90 something cents on every dollar of like property taxes is supposed to go to Chicago public schools. If you make a TIF district, a TIF district, they don't get to do that anymore. Now it goes to the TIF fund. So you're basically dooming a TIF district to usually 10 to 12 years of poverty because that's how long the TIF uh, period is, right? I mean, um, I don't know if I'm telling you stuff you already know. but No, I'm, I'm actually not so familiar with that. Yeah, I but, mean, but I... What I would want to know is who who's running it? Rom. Who else? Well, then that's... If the people who are running it don't care, care more about their own welfare and and wealth and about doing what the funds are supposed to do allegedly, then that's that's the problem. <clears throat> the fact the fact that that that's tolerable, and in fact tolerated by most people. That's also a big part of the problem. Again, and when I'm when I talk about investment in in minority neighborhoods, I'm not talking about a small thing. No. I'm talking about the kind of wealth that was basically channeled away from them. Mm -hmm. I'm talking about something that will actually remedy the harm caused. Right. And I mean the the, the extra calamity of it is that we create these tip districts. Um, businesses don't want to build there because they're violent and the schools are bad, so they have no workforce pipeline. But instead of putting money back into the schools, this money gets funneled off for our business projects, which are supposedly supposed to go to those low-income neighborhoods, but they can't fix the problems that make the businesses not want to go there because the money's being funneled off. So, like... It's just this perpetual, I mean, and it's such waste. And I think it's like $5 billion they've collected in TIF money since they started the program. And none of it, sans a whole food, has been spent in a low-income. I mean, you look at Longdale, you look at <clears throat> all, these, all these different places that just need somebody to be daring enough to go into the neighborhood and build something. And you've got so many... You've got a lot of young population who uh, who need jobs. I mean, a lot of them come from single parent homes. They gotta put money on the 
you know, they got to put food on the table. There's lots of mouths to feed. Um, and the government really has no interest in that. What they have interest in doing is scrubbing up and making look pretty the parts of the, the city that people already go to. I mean, ask any tourist. They're going to go to Michigan Avenue. They're going to come down here. You don't need more shiny buildings to get them to come here. It's, it's really a crime, and it's, it's just such a good example of how government cannot do anything. Well, I, I think it depends on who's running the government. I guess, I mean, I just disagree with you because historically the federal government has been, and again, I, I hate to talk about the government as though it's in any way independent of the will the, of the people. Uh, the will of the people, yeah. 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 The will of, at least the will of the powerful people. Yeah. And so it's not just an entity out there. It, it acts through people whose values are widely shared, widely shared enough that nothing changes. And I guess I would just add to that, I mean, you know, I, I accept your description of the sound outrage. That in a place like Naperville, there are superb schools mm -hmm. and that people are, are content to have, mostly white people, are content to have their superb schools and then turn a completely blind eye to other children that don't look like them who are in crappy schools because of policies that were intended to benefit those white people mm. all along. It's outrageous. It's outrageous. And, you know, I say Naperville, I happen to have lived there and I, mm -hmm. I've seen what that's like. But other, you know, there are plenty of white suburbs with great schools you know, and those kids get great educations, and then they do great on the standardized tests, and they go to great schools, and on and on and on. This was produced by the white collective, a government run entirely by white people, and this was true, you know, well into the, I forget when the first African-American cabinet officer was, you have a government run by white people for the benefit of white people. And it's no surprise then that the, pe the beneficiaries are whites and, and everybody else left behind. Well, I think, I mean, it, it's... Um, subscribing to that argument, I mean, it is not justifiable if we're going with the way you presented it that white people choose to turn a blind eye to... Latino and black communities. But I think that the, a big problem is, is nobody likes being told that their, their property is ill-gotten, that their education is preordained, you know, that they are perpe like perpetuating this white-centric society, you know? I mean, uh, that, that, that's a hard sell. I mean, you, you know, I, I, and especially because I mean, I, I'll just use an example of my family. Like, my family didn't come here until long after those policies, like certainly slavery, was done. And they came very poor, and they settled in the poorest town in New Hampshire. I think the, the medium income in that town today is, like, still only $16,000. And um, somehow I've, uh, you know, they, they moved past that. And, I mean, how do you tell a family like that that... Um, they're part of this, this legacy system that 
they really didn't have a part of, you know, and um, perhaps in your view were complicit in, but uh, that's different, you know, and um, I mean, then, then there's also just this litany of, of statistics that indicate that there's something more going on here, right? I mean, if you look at Sub-Saharan Africans, they come to the United States and they regularly, like, I think 69% of Sub-Saharan African immigrants over the age of 25 have a college degree, compared to only 63% of, you know, the general population of the country. I mean, so they're doing better in schooling than, than the average white American. They earn more money. I think they earn about $90,000 a year on average. I mean, that's that's well before the well above the national average of fifty five thousand. So like there are these token examples that it's not just about blackness, right? Perhaps it's about American blackness. Perhaps it's about the people that mm. have history here, you know. Uh, and then I mean, obviously, Asian immigrants are far exceeding people in, on almost every metric in the United States. And I know that they often get thrown the, the title of model minority, you know, but uh, it's still something you have to reconcile with. So, so how is it that we come down on certain communities and not other? And then how do we how do we explain that? I mean, that's a tough question, right? Now, let me just make a little note here. Okay, because you, you've you've covered a lot of issues in yeah, your last sorry. comment. I, yeah. No, 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 that's okay. It's fine. It's it's all part of the conversation for sure. It is, and it's it's. I mean, I let, think. Let me just say, you know. Go ahead. So you began by saying that people don't like to hear that their property is ill-gotten and that they've benefited from unjust enrichment. Right, right. And surely that's true. People right. don't like to hear it. No. Right, but what if it's true? Shall shall we live a lie? Shall we pretend it's not true? And this is one of the real problems with with the way history is taught. Because mm-hmm. everything I've said to you, I can prove. And I do, in the article I mentioned to you. Yeah, no, I, I read and the article. No, you haven't read Doctrines of Delusion. Oh, no, I haven't. No, sorry. I can prove every single thing that I said. Sure. And so there are, there are certain truths that people may not like them, but it's the truth, and you can either you can run away from it, you can hide, you can do, or you can say, "Gee, that happened. Mm-hmm. That's part of the record. This is part of what it means to be white in this society or to be black. Part of that meaning is what the history has been. Mm-hmm. No matter when you get here, mm-hmm. it's part of the meaning. Mm-hmm. So you know, yeah, I, I get it that people don't like it, but do you think? How do you think it feels to have been the object of all of this, to have been denied the education, to have been denied the mortgages, to have been denied the wealth, to continue to face discrimination? All of it. Is, that's rhetorical. Oh, sorry. Well, that's a much worse state of affairs than being rich and not liking to hear something. Hundred percent. It's agree. just it's 100%. just a remarkable detachment from reality, which honestly. Only, only whites can pull off in this society because everybody else has to deal with it, pretty much. Mm-hmm. So the fact that, yeah, people don't like it, and I think one of the fundamental 
problems in the whole educational system throughout, and including law school, is that we don't learn what we need to learn to do justice mm -hmm. and to understand why anything's even necessary. Mm. It, 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 it's this just remarkable detachment from history that's inexplicable to me, except as a, as a society-wide consensus to deny the reality of what our society has been. Because the evidence is all there. You look at the evidence, you you'll find what I found. So, so um, I'd like to bring it back to the fact that there are certain minorities that outperform in the United States. Yes. And I guess how do we how do we account for that? And um, I mean, how does how does that play into the narrative, right? I mean, what what is it about those people that makes them different? Uh, whether they are different or whether we view them as different or uh i mean it's it's a hard it's is it just an artifact or is it or is it indicative of something more well, all right so for fair-skinned immigrants the bottom line is that even relatively recent arrivals are allowed to be white mm. There's they're deemed white they're allowed to be white mm -hmm. and being white in this society has a lot of meanings and, and it, it, it has a lot of benefits that usually go unarticulated and unexamined. I don't mean to inter interrupt, but there yeah. is an interesting statistic that I was reading the other day about how uh, families that immigrate from uh, Central and Southern America, uh, you know, they, they immigrate and the parents will, during the census, identify themselves and their children at Hispanic or Latino or Latina. And then once their progeny get old enough to fill out the census report themselves, they identify as white. Mm -hmm. I mean, so I don't know if, uh, I, I don't know exactly what that means, but it is interesting that um, mm -hmm. the second generation immigrants will conceptualize themselves as white or perhaps aspire to be white, you know. Uh, but now, not to derail what you were no, saying. No, I mean, you, you can conceptualize yourself however you want. That doesn't change how majority society sees you. And, and a lot of the mm. ability to, to be considered white has to do with your skin color. And so, you know, dark-skinned people aren't admitted into whiteness. Now, you asked about, say, the example of Japanese. So a lot of people don't realize that Japanese were, were very seriously discriminated against at the beginning of the um, 20th century. They were deemed uh, people inel ineligible for citizenship, actually, because naturalized citizenship was only available to white people. Mm. Yeah, this is the Korematsu era. No, too, no well, this is before Korematsu. Korematsu yeah. okay. So there was a lot of discrimination <clears throat> against people, so-called people ineligible for citizenship, which was code for Japanese. Mm. So the model minority thing is a very recent invention, and it actually seems to have begun sometime in the 60s. Mm -hmm. And it, it obscures a lot, because not all Asian groups are described 
in any way by model minority. There are lots of poor Asians sure. in Cambodia and mm-hmm. Vietnam mm-hmm. and the Philippines mm-hmm. and Indonesia, Thailand. There, mm-hmm. there are lots of there are lots of poor Asian immigrants who whose quality of life is obscured mm-hmm. by by the model minority label. Right. With respect to to Japanese, I think a lot of it has to do with the kind of social capital that exists in the Japanese community. The the Japanese who first arrived, I think, were relatively well-educated. In other words, the the generation of parents, that first generation, they had education. Mm -hmm. And once you have education... It's easier to inculcate those values. Right. right. You you transmit the value of of the education and the ability to do it. Mm -hmm. So so social capital has a lot to do with that success Mm -hmm. for everybody, actually. Mm -hmm. Right, right. It has an enormous amount to do with it. Yeah. You know, I, um, one of the things that's been shown is basically that at the time that Asians began to be called model minority, basically the amount of racism that they experienced started to go down. They became more accepted. And that makes a very huge difference. Because if you're more accepted, then you can move into that white neighborhood. You can go to those white schools. And that process began in around the 60s for especially Japanese Americans, but I think, I think for so-called model minority Asians. Hmm. That seems to be the biggest reason actually underlying their success. Is the fact that there was less the, discrimination. I mean, they so the moniker that is kind of derogatory, actually allowed them a little social mobility is, is kind of what you're saying. Like the, uh, the perception of being a model minority, in fact, made them more model, you know? Well, I think whites discriminated less against them. And with respect to blacks and Latinos, it's been unabated. Yeah. If, well, if why you, you face less discrimination, then you do better. I mean, so why is it like what what's the chip on white people's shoulders in your view against latinos and and african americans i mean it, it it just seems so arbitrary especially given what i was saying about sub-saharan africans who surpass i mean uh even even the median uh averages for whites in america i mean and uh indian american uh People from India, we'll say, uh, they generally outperform whites in terms of salary and and uh, and, and accrued wealth. And I mean, people from West India basically look like African Americans. I mean, uh, Malcolm X. Uh, so I guess it's just it seems so arbitrary to me, right? And I mean, of course, racism is an arbitrary thing, right? But it. What, what is still, what, what barriers are there that we evidently aren't placing on other communities? That's a hard well, question to answer. Well, I mean, a lot I, of those communities you're describing arrive with a lot of social capital, mm-hmm. meaning ed, highly educated. And that makes a huge difference. Mm-hmm. 
so so what question what question are you asking me? You know, I think I think we probably answered that question. I think I think we I I was kind of retreading old territory. <clears throat> and I, and I think that um the problem is is that you look at Asian American and people from India and uh, all these other places that are just generally outperforming. And you look at them and what you deduce by just observing their behavior is that they have a culture of education and hard work and discipline. And you attribute that to something that they have really cultivated in themselves. And then you look at poor inner city areas with Latinos and African Americans and you say, well, they don't have that same culture, right? And you attribute it to culture and not to circumstance. And I think that that's a nuance that I didn't have before that I'm taking away from everything you're telling me is like, oh, they would have the culture of education had they had the education, right? I mean, well, so, had they been allowed. Right, one, one right. Of the, one of the great poignant ironies is that African-American veterans wanted to be educated just as much as whites, mm. but it wasn't mm. allowed. They weren't allowed to get the education. Mm. And today they're not allowed to have good education, and now it's blamed on resources. Wow. I mean, I'm with you there. I was telling you about the tips. I think that's it's so evil and it's so under the radar. I don't know how every socially conscious person in the city of Chicago doesn't know about the tips. It's crazy hmm. the amount of money that we just pilfer. Can um, I just say one of the one of the frequent moves, especially if you don't know history, if you don't know how the inequality came about, mm -hmm. if you don't know this, then you can believe a lot of things. Right. But if you do know the history, then it becomes, it's impossible to blame people who have been kept from being educated for not being educated. Right, right, right. Except that's what the society does. It's remarkable. Mm. Blaming things, you know, blaming culture is, is a proxy for blaming race. And, and who, who produced the poverty? Well, it was white people and a government for white people that produced black poverty in cities and produced poor education and continues to reinforce that. It's, it's remarkable. I, I don't know if you encountered the, the decision of San Antonio versus Rodriguez, San Antonio School District, the Supreme Court case, 1973, I think. Is this, did you reference this in Biscondo, America, or is this a different case? I might have. Okay. Possible. All right. It's a while ago I wrote that. Yeah. But um, so in that Good case, the Supreme Court, basically a group of Latino <clears throat> parents in San Antonio were protesting the fact that their school district was, was much lower funded than the school district next door, which was for white people. Yep. And so they claimed that that violated equal protection and that it violated a fundamental right to education. Mm -hmm. and, and the disparity in funding was huge, mm -hmm. like what we see between, you know, inner city school districts and suburban school districts. Mm -hmm. So the claim was, you know, we should be able to have equal funding for our schools and schools that are just as good, and it's a fundamental right. Mm -hmm. And on both counts, the Supreme Court said no. Said no, education is not a fundamental right. 
as understood under constitutional law. Yeah. And it doesn't violate equal protection for mostly white school districts to get much more money than your mostly Latino school district. Mm -hmm. Now, what does that do? It guarantees inequality for the rest of everybody's life. It guarantees, and to call education not fundamental in this country, after Brown versus Board of Education recognizes that education is probably the most important thing that governments do, is unbelievable. So the Supreme Court locks in that inequality. And basically, it's a statement that it's okay for whites to have all the wealth and for whites to have all the education. That's okay. That doesn't violate equal protection. Personally, I would have felt a lot, and it was a five to four case, Justice Marshall and Brennan on, in the dissent. How about fairness? How about, it does, you know, you don't have to have a huge uh, ethical sense to recognize that that's deeply unfair. Mm -hmm. It's especially when you understand how that unfairness was created. Mm. It's deeply unfair, and the Supreme Court, you know, weighs in on protecting that unfairness, making sure it can't be changed. And then they do it in the Milliken case, too, in Detroit. It's remarkable. Mm. And so, you know, mostly the society is about <clears throat> protecting the status quo. And, and if you, you asked me before, well, what, why do whites do this? I ask myself this a lot. Why not share? Why not respond to that unfairness? Mm. It's not hard to recognize, especially when you know the history. But you don't even know, need to know the history to know, gee, these kids are way better off than those kids. And, and very few people care about that. See, that, that's, that's just a fundamental ethical and moral blind spot. And I, I think, you know, I think a lot of what we see today is about white people protecting their own power and their own wealth. And so much of it is ill-gotten. This is the really profoundly immoral part. And so it really serves an important function for people not to know this history, which is why I think it's not taught, because it makes people profoundly uncomfortable. It raises the hard moral questions about what our society has really been like and what it continues to be like. And we ought to wrestle with those questions. Well, that's why we started this show. You know, um, I guess, yeah, I mean, everything that you just said is such a good argument for me why government should not be in the businesses it's in. You know, I mean, if, and this might be a little off track, but if we privatized education, all you see is dollar signs, right? And I mean, why not give people like, you know, voucher, subsidy, have them go to these schools, you know, and... Uh, you know, if the money's going to come in, they'll take the students, right? I mean, we should strive towards a meritocracy that is even across the board, right? 
Um, and I know sitting here in front of you that there definitely are people, black, Latino, that are more smart than me, that smarter than me, that should be here, you know? Uh, I, can, I can accept that, right? And I just, I think that this is such a good example of how when, you know, there, the, the tyranny of the majority that James Madison was worried about is what your whole theory of the federal government is. You know, it's the will of the people, right? It's the majority of, like, whatever they want. And, and sometimes it's misdirected. And I, I, I'm rambling now. I do want to move on because okay. I know that, like I said, this is a response to that open letter last year. But I know that there's a new program for the 1Ls, mm -hmm. uh, the first-year students they have to go through. Uh, what is it, five weeks? I was talking to Zelda yes. Harris about this the other day. And I know that you are one of the adjunct faculty, one of the faculty members for it. Mm -hmm. So uh, I guess uh, if you could give me the synopsis of that, um, how, what the curriculum's gonna be like, and uh, how, how that was decided, what that process is like, and what you hope the outcomes of this new program are gonna be. Because I think that this treads into a lot of interesting areas. Yeah, well, I think Dean Harris is, pro is the best person to talk to because she's really leading the effort and putting it together. But, but several of us are working on it. Mm -hmm. um, so w one of the things that the, the letter stated was that it's interactions between between law students and sometimes between students and faculty and you know in general in the community are, are difficult with respect to race I think also with respect to sex um, and part part of what's missing I think and this isn't unique to us at all I mean if anything we're, we're a little better maybe than a lot of places. It's, it's know, a very open institution. Conversations about race are really hard. You know, yeah. uh, you know and this conversation is, is hard. I'm sweating like I mean, a pig over here. Uh, <laughs> 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 well, I'm sorry about that. Yeah, well. but, but the thing is, you know, part of, part of why it's not comfortable, I think, is because, you know, we don't have a shared understanding of what our history is like. Mm. I mean, unless you've done the work that I've done, you wouldn't know this history, and I think everybody should know it, because I think it would, it would make a difference in understanding what's fair and what isn't. But notwithstanding, it's, it's hard to talk about race, and it's hard to understand people who look different from us, all around, in ways. And so I think the other thing is, is about implicit bias. And, yeah, let's get it. Let's and implicit bias is is very widespread. Most most of us have the set of implicit biases that we would figure most of us would have if you pay attention to what the stereotypes are in society. Mm -hmm. So, what that means is that we give the benefit of the doubt to the relatively privileged groups, such as whites, such as men such as straight people rather than gay people. And all of this is measured in terms of the IAT. 
and it makes sense given again given what's what's the IAT? Oh, it's the implicit association test. This is the one from Harvard. Right? Yes, yeah, it's okay. a way of measuring <clears throat> implicit bias. So, but let me let me oh, finish just yeah. the point in terms Sorry. of the rationale. So, implicit bias poses a big challenge mm -hmm. because we all think we're fair, and most of us have good intentions, mm -hmm. but implicit bias actually changes how we react to different kinds of people. Mm -hmm. And so we may think we're fair, but the evidence shows that really we're not. We tend to give the benefit of the doubt to some people, and the flip side is we diminish the benefit of the doubt, we're more suspicious and less apt to be giving to people who aren't in the preferred groups. Mm -hmm. So we think we're fair all along, yet implicit bias tests and then our behavior and actually societal outcomes too show that we're really not fair. Mm -hmm. And so one of our so two two challenges in terms of lawyerly professional identity are learning to communicate competently with people who look different from us. That's just a really valuable skill and then also learning how to be more fair. Mm. Which both of which help us deal with the whole array of people that we'll encounter in our professional lives. I, I mean, I think I, I definitely agree with the whole narrative that you've just espoused that it's most likely true that we have unconscious bias, right? It's implicit and unconscious. Those are interchangeable, right? I mean, basically. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> but I do have a lot of problems with the implicit bias test. Uh, as a psychometric test, right? I mean, are the students going to be taking this test in the class, or I think so. Oh, okay. not not in the class necessarily, but okay. Yeah, yeah. I mean, just because I think, like, I've gone on Harvard's website and taken the test a few times, but what I've noticed is that if it is measuring something, I think it's in group versus out group response, right? Like, there's a some of the studies show that you know African Americans don't have more implicit favorableness to whites, they have it towards other African Americans. So it's, you associate whatever words they put up there, you know, like, smart, cool, funny, try, like, with your in-group, rather than the white patriarchal hmm. system. And then it's just not reliable. Like, you can take the test twice in a row and get a completely different result. Um, I think the, uh, the reliability is like a 0.5 correlation, which most psychometric tests need to be like at least a 0.8 to be deemed reliable. And then the studies are pretty thin on the validity of the implicit bias test in terms of what your result of the test is doesn't really inform how you go out and act. So like if I get the implicit bias test and it says like I'm more favorable towards whites, which is probably the result I'd get. Um, in no way is pre predictive of me going out and like saying something racist, you know? And I know that that's tenuous, but um, I, I wish that there was a better way to drill down on the concept than the current test that is mm -hmm. out there, the IET, because I, I do have problems with it, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and I understand that I'm not trying to make you, put you in a position of defending the IET. You didn't make it. Right, but I mean, what, what what do you think? And I guess what's uh, so? Let's say you get a, a bad result on the test. 
what then? Like, what, what are you guys going to be teaching in the class that will say, like, okay, here's how you can reduce your implicit bias, assuming that it exists, regardless of the validity of the IET, right? Let's put that aside. I'm going to go ahead and grant that it exists. Like, of course it does, right? We're constantly judging things. And we, to quote Nietzsche, we embody our ideas before we can, like, uh, our, our words spring from the ground of our action, right? We embody ideas long before we can articulate them. So we interact with people, we're interfacing with them, we embody these ideas before we can articulate them, probably bias. What then? You know, what? Like, how do, uh, how do you fix something that you can't even, it's unconscious, right? It's like telling you what to dream at night. Well, you know, I guess I don't look at it quite that way. Okay. You know, um, so I've, I've gotten plenty of results on the test that I'm not happy with. Sure. I don't like my own results on the test. Different. I take a bunch of them. Um, so, but it, intuitively, it makes sense to me. So, so the, what the IAT measures is the speed of response, basically. Right. But another way to think of it is the ease of association mm -hmm. of good with one identity trait right. and bad with another. And we should probably explain the test for people that don't oh. know uh, who yeah, are listening. So it it, it kind of missed that, right? So basically, the test asks you to associate words connoting good things with different kinds of pictures, pictures right. of different people mm -hmm. along all kinds of axes. Mm -hmm. um, and it measures mm -hmm. the speed with which you're able to associate both good terms and bad terms with different kinds of pictures. Mm -hmm. And and in the end, so most people that take the race IT, or let's use the age one, most people have a preference for youth rather than old age. Sure, yes, absolutely. And it's quite a strong preference. It's mm -hmm. one of the strongest that is, ones that's measured. That is, I will, okay. yes. And it turns out that even if you're in the category of older person, you have the same bias. So it's not true that, that, that your unconscious necessarily goes with your in-group. It, okay. It's, it's well, I, often I mean, true, but it's not, it's not entirely true. We could say for age that that's pretty much a universally desired quality. Is, I mean, that's true. People, people pine for you. So granted but on in, that point, yeah. But even, and, and you mentioned about the IAT, a, a slight majority of African Americans actually has a preference for whites. Is that right? Yeah. Mm. And 51% or so. Okay. So actually, African Americans are more like a bell curve. Right, right, right. Know, yeah. Centered around a zero axis, whereas whites show a much stronger bias towards whites. Hmm. Now, this makes sense because we're bombarded from, you know, the time we are born, bombarded with positive images of whites and negative images of blacks. Bombarded. And it can, you know, it never ends. It's still true. Just there have been studies that show, for example, that on the local news, they're much more apt to show whites in roles as rescuers or heroes or victims and African Americans as perpetrators and criminals way disproportionate to what's actually true. I mean, so, even so accounting just, for the crime statistics. Yes, okay. absolutely. So that's, that's <clears throat> a really good example of how yeah. we get, there's a book called uh, 
The Black Image and the White Mind, which was a study of the Chicago market and the local news. And, and part of the findings are what I just described to you. Right. So there's a, a never-ending barrage of images that have meaning and have content. And, and that's a big source of these implicit biases. Now, in terms of, you ask, what do you do with it? At least for me, you know, so my test results, the first time I took it, I was surprised and unhappy. Okay. After that, I thought about it, and I thought, yeah, you know, it makes sense. Given my upbringing, given what, what I know to be true. What specifically were you unhappy about? Um, just that. Well, let's just say my, my test results didn't conform to my ideas Your about self -conceptualization, it. Yes, sure, absolutely. Yeah. It just it didn't at all, and, and that was upsetting at first. Mm -hmm. And then as I thought about it, I realized, yeah, you know, in my background, there... I didn't have the kinds of relationships with people who look different from me that would have allowed me to have a different internalized sense of it. Mm -hmm. And so as I think about it and when I take the other test too, you know, I, I see it makes sense. My results always make sense to me. Mm -hmm. and, and so so what do I do with that? Well, I understand that, that I'm not fair. I try to be fair, you know, and I have good intentions, but I have to work at it. I'm, I'm not fair just by doing what I usually do. I have to work at being fair. I have to make sure that, that my actions correspond to what the ideals. I think... Yeah. I'm like, mm -hmm. and, and what I aspire to be like. Right. And it goes, it, I mean, you mentioned before, you know, not saying racist things, and yeah, that's, that's important, that's something. It's a big one, this, yeah. This yeah. is a conscious thing, though. Mm -hmm. Unconsciously, we still behave in different ways. We give cues. Or right, not. right. And so, you know, at least for me, it's about really interrogating myself mm -hmm. often, all the time, actually, and just making sure, as sure as I can be, mm -hmm. that I really treat everybody the same. Right. right. Well, when it comes to grading, when it comes to anything, interactions. Mm -hmm. And and so I monitor myself a lot. Mm. And I, I just, I really work hard to make sure. And it's always a work in progress. I'm right. never done. Right. So I think this is what, this is what you do with it. If you, if you find that you're biased, and almost all of us are, then the task is, number one, understand the bias, explore it, think about it, understand it, understand how it manifests, and then commit, commit and I've committed myself, to managing it, mm -hmm. and, and to really working at being more fair. And, and I, I think, I mean, I, I know that that makes a difference mm -hmm. for me and, and how I am. I, based on my present state of knowledge about implicit bias and, and all of that, I think I do the best I can. But I, I always interrogate that. And I always really, not just think, but I, I really challenge myself to 
to be who I wish I was, you know, and, and to work at it, because that's what it takes. It takes some effort. Right. I, I think that the, uh, the IAT is really good for that, if nothing else. You know, I mean, and here's how I think about it, because I am skeptical, because there's, there is really good evidence that if you take it once, you can cheat the, the test and basically get a different result the next time if you focus on it a little bit more. Um, but to me, like in my mind, the results could almost be random. The goal is to just make you think that you think differently than the way you think you think. And I know that that was a lot of the word think, but uh, make you turn the camera lens inward and assess yourself in from a different vantage point than you had before. I mean, and if the test is only good for that, that's a pretty good thing, right? I mean, like, uh, we should be surprised by who we are every once in a while, right? If we get too comfortable with ourselves, we get stagnant and we get <laughs> old and crotchety and uh, we turn into my sib pro professor. Um, but, you know, it, it's it's good to uh, view yourself in, in a different light every once in a while. And I think the test is probably good for that, even if it's not a valid psychometric measure. I mean, well, I'm, I'm, I don't concede that. I mean, I know you feel that yeah. way about it. I'm not, I'm not aware also of the studies you're saying that it's easy to manipulate your result. You know, I haven't tried to manipulate my result. But right. I'm also not aware of that. That's not what the, mm. the research I'm familiar with doesn't, doesn't show that. It, does it worry you at all that you might be, like, if you ask the students to do this, that you are basically administering a, a psychological test to students I mean we couldn't just give out like a depression like a Meyer break like depression scale test to students like we couldn't we couldn't run any other kind of psychological test does it seem like a little bit like they're going to reprogramming school like to you at all or or do you see it differently I mean I, I know that that's a bit uh, like a, a bit of histrionics but like what do you had um, you know so for starters, in terms of dealing with our biases, I think we need some reprogramming. Okay. If we're serious about dealing with them, we, mm -hmm. have, to, we have to identify them and acknowledge them and, and work on it. Mm -hmm. The whole profession is doing this. Yeah. The whole profession. Uh -huh. the, the national, um, I forget the initials, but the, the National Association of State Courts holds trainings all the time for state judges. Federal judges are trained all the time on implicit bias. Mm -hmm. There's a mandatory CLE now as part of the Illinois State Bar requiring people to explore their implicit bias. Is that right? Yes. I participated in filming that. Mm -hmm. So it's the, the whole profession is concerned about it. Mm -hmm. There's, there's a, a massive ABA study showing areas of concern. If you think about it, so many forms of legal professionals, you know, judges, jurors, prosecutors, defense attorneys, everybody has discretion there. Mm. And if we want to be able to believe more in our justice system, then we need to deal with the reality of bias and work on it and and you know numerous judges are doing exactly that mm -hmm. so 
I don't, it's part of our profession. Mm-hmm. I think it should be. Now, you know, some people would disagree with that. But, I don't but, disagree But with the bottom that. line, you know, there's also ABA model rule 8.4G, I think it is, which now makes it an ethical violation if you engage in sexual harassment and, and other kinds of harassment. And so it's very new. I think it's just like two years old or something like mm-hmm. that. Well, you know, I think, at least in my opinion, that says it should be. So, so I mean, we, we have a, a need to become aware of our biases and to manage them constructively as mm-hmm. professionals. Mm-hmm. It's important to be fair if you're a lawyer. Right. Well, yeah, I mean, we'll, <clears throat> there's no doubt that okay. we need to so, hold ourselves to a higher standard well, than your average Joe, and, and I'm 100% with you on that. Um, well, and, and this is the way, I think. Right. Or this is at least an important way. It's that, a way, that's, yeah, right. That's, well, but it's been recognized by the whole profession at this point. The ABA, the Illinois Bar, these are not fringe groups. You know, this is the American Bar Association, the Illinois State Bar Association, so and, and the conferences of judges. So, you know... I, I think that we're actually preparing our students well for the profession as it develops because we're developing in this direction mm-hmm. and have been for a while now. Um, I want to go back to your writings because uh, Biscondo America was my favorite piece that I read by you because mm-hmm. it's so, it's got so much to it that we could have spent the whole show unpacking it. Um, uh, but really, like, it, you, you put forth this idea that uh, language is central to identity, specifically the identity of minorities and uh, Latinos. And uh, I, I guess I want to I dig into that because it's not obvious to me why that is the case. And I'd like you to just explain how... Uh, like the, the antecedents that made you believe that and, and, and how you feel. I mean, I know you said you grew up speaking Spanish. Mm-hmm. So what does the Spanish language mean to you? And how do you reconcile that the fact that you speak Spanish is central to your identity, but it's also a product of imperialism? I mean, uh, yes. uh, that seems to me to be a, a bit of a, a contradiction there, right? I mean, but probably not. I mean, why don't mm-hmm. you take it away? It's a kind of accommodation to reality. Yeah, we don't have choices <laughs> of what we're born into. Right. You know, whether it's language or wealth or skin color or anything. Mm-hmm. Um, so language is interesting because it, it really does condition how we can think. Mm-hmm. And, and this is very powerfully true. You know, for example, in some... Native American languages, there's 26 terms for snow, which describe the quality of the snow. Mm-hmm. We just say snow. Snow, snow. snow or, or slush. Or yeah. big flakes or oh, little right, flakes. Right. But, you know, so, so if you can think of snow in 26 flavors, basically, you see the snow in a different way. You have a whole different really. palette. Yes, yeah, right, exactly. Right, and exactly. that's what language does. Mm-hmm. Language gives you the palette with which you interpret 
reality. Mm -hmm. So it's it's very important on that level. In in terms of identity, it's important because you know we often we don't really have a choice about what we're born into. As I said before, in in my lived experience, I was discriminated a lot because I was a Spanish speaker. I got beaten up all the time because I was different as a young kid. I mean, it was it was a nightmare, actually. And I didn't understand it, except I knew, and, and I, God, I just got, so many people messed with me, beat me up, tried to get me in trouble, took advantage of the fact that I didn't know English. It was, it was really awful. Yeah, it sounds and terrible. So, so I, I know that a lot of discrimination happens because of language. And to this day, it's, it's legal to fire someone for speaking a, a language other than English in the workplace. Is that right? Yeah. And that just, it has to be wrong. I mean, it's just, it, it's, well, it doesn't have to be anything. But for me, that's just really wrong. It's morally wrong. It, it, it's not, but it's a way. It's a way that that conquest that you mentioned continues. It's a way of guaranteeing the supremacy of English, even if it's not necessary. It's kind of a gratuitous way of of uh, preserving English dominance everywhere. So. I guess what I would say is that there's a lot of discrimination that happens because of language and because of accent, and it's quite unfair, like other forms of discrimination that are more recognized. So basically, my one of my projects early on was to just kind of put it on the map as a form of discrimination, and then in, in the Buscando America piece, just to show, you know, how what the history has been with respect to language and, and the forms of discrimination because of language, but especially for Latinos in that piece. <clears throat> so, I mean, in the, in the piece, uh, Scano America, you, uh, you do draw this, you draw some inference between English and, and whiteness in America and Spanish and mm -hmm. non-white. And um, I guess you're really good at like, you know, setting the ball to be spiked for this tension that's going on between the two. But I guess, what is the, again, the policy that is going to fix this? I mean, because it's obviously untenuous to propose that everyone learn every, every language. So how do we not discriminate against people who speak different languages with us, save the fact that we can't all just learn every language? I mean, I, I, there is something untenable about it, right? Well... How about we just respect people's languages mm -hmm. and people's ways of being? Right. Here, here's two, two examples. Often the, the arguments made in the workplace that we need to have one language for reasons of public safety. Safety, efficiency, protection of the workers. That's, that's an argument that's come up in the cases. Now, right, it doesn't necessarily make sense. Uh -huh. That's low you, on the list for yeah, me. Yeah, you're giving me a... a puzzled expression. I'm furrowing my brow for the yes, listeners. Yes. Okay. To me, it doesn't make much sense because businesses that, that actually are concerned with public health and safety, like take the airlines. 
The safety instructions are always in more than one language. It's in English, Spanish, French, and maybe something else, depending on the airline. Why? Because people understand best in the languages that they speak, their native languages. So right. if you're really concerned about safety, if it's really an issue, then you deal with people in the languages that they understand the best. And I would just also add that 90% of jobs, uh, the public safety is going to amount to seeing a fire extinguisher on a wall, which is a pretty universal signal, seeing an exit sign, or if you work in food service, wearing gloves. These things don't require uh, proliferation of the language barrier. You know, um, So that's a, that's a pretty specious argument to me. I mean, I, I think the only tangible argument would be that, you know, customer service, like most, like, I mean, just as a point of fact, maybe this isn't a normative statement, but most people in the United States speak English, right? Mm -hmm. um, so if you want to provide a good or service, English is kind of the go-to. Of course. Maybe it shouldn't be. You know, I, I wish that I could turn back the hands of time and, and learn Spanish, you know, but better than I know it. But, uh, so, so I guess how, so, do you, how, how does that fit into Yeah, well, mo most Latinos speak English. They do. I mean, yeah, think, think about it. I mean, it would make absolutely no sense for someone who speaks both Spanish and English. Suppose you're serving an English-speaking customer. Mm -hmm. It would make no sense to speak in the customer in a language other than English. Right, right. It would make no sense for an employer to hire a solely Spanish-speaking person if the customers speak English. Right. So all you need is to assume a little rationality, and the business owner will hire someone who can communicate in English, and the, the employee, him or herself, will speak English to the people who speak English, and maybe a different language if somebody else speaks a different language. Right. Otherwise, they're not doing the job. Right. So what's the problem? Um, was that for me? I mean, I mean in general. I, I, I don't see it. I mean, but I guess I'm just trying to like figure out the, the I'm trying to delineate what becomes discriminatory and what is just uh, we have to take the facts on the ground as they are. Right. I mean, uh, okay. it would it would be really great if we could all just pick up bits and pieces of every language, you know, and, and enough to at least have a simple conversation. I think that that is definitely something we should aspire to, if not just for the intellectual benefits of learning another language. Uh, let me give you an example. Okay, go so, ahead. So, yeah. and, and let this, maybe we can wrap it up. Yeah, sure. In, yeah, in a, anytime in a couple you want. minutes. Okay. okay. Um, all right. So, in, in the, the first and still leading case on this, it's called Garcia versus Glor, mm -hmm. G L O R. It okay. happens in Texas. Okay. And in that case, there's a, a Mexican American employee, speaks both Spanish and English, mm -hmm. and the employer has an English-only rule, basically saying you can only speak English in the store. Mm -hmm. So the employee answers a work-related question from a Spanish-speaking employee. The, the question is asked in Spanish. Mm -hmm. He answers in Spanish. Mm -hmm. Then he gets fired for breaking the English-only rule. Mm -hmm. Now, what is the function of the English-only rule in that context? You have a communication between two employees who understood each other, they were doing their job, mm -hmm. they did their job, mm -hmm. and yet the employer fires the employee. All right, right. In that instance, it seems to me it's about the employer 
attempting to assert control over the language Absolutely. in a way that's yeah. inappropriate. That's my judgment. A lot of people would probably disagree with that. Uh, not reasonable people. <laughs> but, but the courts follow along. That's mm -hmm. still the law. You can fire somebody for speaking Spanish or any other language in the workplace. Merely for that. Doesn't, according to the courts, it's not national origin discrimination. That's the law. Hmm. So, you, right, you can say that's crazy or it's unfair, whatever, however we might think about it. Right, right. But the federal courts are consistent on that. Well, and yeah. They say it's fine. So something's right. out of whack with the federal courts. Let me just end then with, with a story. Yeah, please. You, you asked me how do we deal with this. I would say respect. Right. So... I, I used to work at the uh, Federal Reserve in Boston. Mm -hmm. and, oh, well. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Well, so, and, and that's right near Chinatown yep. in Boston. Yeah. So it was really fun to go for lunch in Chinatown because mm -hmm. Chinatown is great. Bubble tea. Mm -hmm. oh, I love bubble tea. It's wonderful, <laughs> wonderful food, and I have lots of nice memories about it. Then I also sometimes enjoy going into the Chinese grocery stores and just seeing what they have because it's so different you know, from a, a chain grocery store, sure, let's yeah. say. So, you know, I would do that regularly. And I remember one time in particular being, you know, at, at the counter. I, I was just buying some nice sesame oil or something. And and the person behind the counter started speaking Chinese, mm -hmm. you know, to a coworker. And my gut response is, they must be talking about me. They're making fun of me. <laughs> You paranoid know, just sinks they in. must be right and then I stepped back for a second from that reaction and I thought wait a minute this is a Chinese grocery store everything in here is in Chinese everybody who <laughs> works here speaks Chinese of course they're going to speak to each other in Chinese right and I felt a little better and I got my sesame oil and I left mm -hmm. So I think the response of many of us when we're in an environment, you know, surrounded by a different language is something like what I described, a kind of fear or worry that, you know, we don't have control over the situation mm, in a way. The unknown Which factor, in, right? in, yeah. in truth, and, and that mm -hmm. I think is probably the, the early reptilian brain responding to a kind of threat, a kind of loss of control insecurity, fear, it's a very automatic response. Right. We don't have to go with that. We don't. We can understand that people speak the languages that they're most comfortable with. Right. When it's appropriate. And of course it's appropriate in a Chinese grocery store. So that, you know, it seems to me if we approach language that way, just respect, you know? That, that would go a long way towards, you know, accommodating the reality of an increasingly diverse society. Well, I think respect is probably a great message to end on. Professor Perea, thank you so yeah. much. Oh, you're this welcome. This has been great. It's my pleasure. I've really right. enjoyed speaking with you. Yeah, all mine. He rocks in the treetop all the day long, hopping and a bopping and a singing his song. All the little birds on Zebra Street talk to the robin, go tweet, 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 rock and robin. You've been listening to Dialogue De Novo. Until next time, thanks for hearing us out.
Dialogue De Novo is produced by Richard Leibovitz and Jacob Rome. Executive producers Richard Leibovitz and Jacob Rome. Supervising producer Michael Kaufman. Technical producers Richard Leibovitz and Jacob Rome. Edited by Richard Leibovitz. Audio mixed by Richard Leibovitz and Jacob Rome. Music written by Jimmy Thomas. Music performed by Bobby Day. Dialogue De Novo is a Loyola University Chicago School of Law student-initiated capstone project founded by Richard Leibovitz and Jacob Rome. Technical production made possible by SoundCloud. Copyright 2018.